Hey everybody, welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today is going to be the last episode of the Manchester Tapes. I thought I would bring it full circle and I would talk more in depth about Factory Records and the Hacienda Club and how those two things really impacted Manchester at the time. Because I talked about Factory Records and the Hacienda, I would say in every single episode of these Manchester episodes that I've done. They play a really, really big role in the sound that Manchester came out with at that time, the Manchester movement. I have to keep talking about Factory Records and the Hacienda, give more background information so you guys know, like, I would be doing Manchester a total disservice if I didn't talk about it. I, I hope that that was a good enough introduction for this. I don't really know how to further explain I'm just going to honestly jump right into it. So starting at the very beginning, we are going to talk about Tony Wilson, who is kind of the ringleader for Factory Records. He was born in Manchester and he attended Cambridge University. In 1973, he returned back home to Manchester to pursue a career in journalism. At this time, he took a job as a reporter with Granada Television who were an independent TV station in Manchester. Um, People really were taken by him, like they liked him, they thought that he was really good at his journalism, but then also doing these really weird things that no journalist would kind of do at the time. Um, So a few years later in 1976, he was given the chance to combine his love for music with his TV career, where he landed a job as a TV presenter for the new music and culture program called So It Goes. So the concept for this TV show was kind of brought on to rival the popular shows at the time, like Top of the Pops and the Old Grey Whistle Test that were already really heavily bringing in views for music television in Britain at the time. It was really their version of our MTV. You know what I mean? Like we had MTV And they had Top of the Pops, The Old Grey Whistle Test, and they had So It Goes. Um, So It Goes was kind of more so mainly a Manchester thing, but he did bring on a lot of other bands and artists that weren't from Manchester, but he still wanted to give a platform for up-and-coming Manchester bands and bands in the north of England and a lot of punk bands because punk was very popular in the 70s, of course, as we all know. So Tony actually had a strong love for punk music And this came from the Sex Pistols when he attended the Sex Pistols' hugely famous Manchester gig at the Lesser Free Trade Hall. That was such an explosive gig for a lot of Manchester bands who went to see that, then formed bands. So a couple of artists that he would feature on So It Goes included the likes of Iggy Pop, Blondie, Patti Smith, and The Jam. The Jam is another good band. Over time, he wanted to do more than just be a TV presenter. He was kind of getting a bit weary of it. He wanted to do something different. So to kind of satiate his palate, he started managing small unknown groups at the time, like a band called A Certain Ratio. They became really, really popular in Manchester as well. So he started managing these small bands with his friend Alan Erasmus. Alan at the time was a local actor and he landed a few small roles in the hit Manchester soap opera Coronation Street. 
So now that Tony was kind of having his career as a newfound band manager, Tony visited the Rafters Club in 1978, where among the bands playing that night was Joy Division. The skinny on this one is Rob Gretton um, was there that night, and he was a DJ, and he was also a tour manager for another band at the time. But he was DJing that night, and he saw Joy Division play. And instantly, he went up to them after their performance, and he offered to be their band manager. So Rob Gretton would come into play, too. He would be a part of Factory Records, too. But just at this moment, they were just kind of managing small bands. They weren't even considering forming a record company yet. It was just really small beginnings. But what I found really interesting was at this point, they started to branch more into clubs at this time. So Tony, he was looking for venues and clubs in Manchester to host the bands that he was managing. You know, like, where can I send my bands out to play? Um, So he and Alan went with a venue called the Russell Club in Manchester's really, really bad Moss Side. Apparently, Moss Side is a really sketchy part of Manchester. So it's kind of interesting that he chose Moss Side. They had a designated night at the Russell Club called Factory Nights that happened on Fridays. And this whole thing started around May in 1978 where they had factory nights on Fridays at the Russell Club. This was where the bands that they were managing could come on and they could perform on Fridays. Alan Erasmus actually suggested these nights become known as the factory. And so that's where the whole image and branding of the factory comes into play. Interestingly, the name Factory got its name from a night where Alan was driving and he saw a sign, you know, on the road that said Factory for Sale in bright neon letters. Like he couldn't miss it. It was right in front of him. And so he was like, wow, that's a really interesting thing. It just kind of struck him. He liked the word Factory and the connotation about factories because you know, a factory is where you work and you create things. And so he liked the whole factory concept. And also Manchester was an industrial town and there were plenty of factories, warehouses around the city. It kind of made sense to him that they would use factory. And so Tony signed off on this one and it became known as factory. It was speculated, though, that the name factory was some kind of homage to Andy Warhol's club in New York at the time called Factory. But Alan dismissed that. He said that that wasn't even like a forethought <laughs> when he came up with Factory. But he's aware of that connection. But it, it wasn't actually where he got Factory from. So now they're putting on Factory Nights at the Russell Club on Fridays. And they're putting their bands up there. At some point in time, Tony Wilson meets graphic designer Peter Saville. And I really, really like Peter Saville's work. In some ways, it's really minimalistic, but it does the job. Tony asked Peter to create a poster for the factory nights. So the design for this poster ended up being incredibly famous. Like this is one of the images that is so well known in Manchester. Like aside from the symbol of the bee, I, I think that this kind of first poster is really um, ingrained in Manchester's history. The poster was a yellow background 
and the main image on the poster is kind of like um like a triple vision or like a 3d kind of uh, image of a man like plugging his ears and underneath that image are the words use hearing protection it was like an homage to kind of in factories how there would be like safety posters and safety signs and things all around the factories and so that's where that image and that used hearing protection kind of was inspired by but he did not think that this would become so synonymous with factory records but it ended up being that so yeah this was very popular this poster specifically was used for shows during may and june in 1978 and this was the first time that Peter Saville ever did any graphic design work for them. And they used him on every, pretty much every single album cover that Factory put out. Like literally they used him for everything. Um, so that's kind of where the beginnings of Factory came into play. Now we're morphing into Factory Records. At the time, there was another Manchester record label called Rabid Records that was run by Tosh Ryan and Martin Hannett that had successful bands on their label like Slaughter and the Dogs. This was one of the bands that Rob Gredin was a tour manager for. Other bands on this label, John Cooper Clark and Jilted John. So these three bands too, like they're very, very popular and they're incorporated in like that Manchester music scene too. Tony Wilson kind of saw how Rabid Records were doing with album sales and they saw kind of how they were promoting the albums and how successful they were. And Tony Wilson was convinced that the real money was actually in album sales and not in like Factory Friday Nights or, um, you know, the TV stuff he was doing. Like it really was in album sales. And so this is where they made the switch to going with selling records. So Tony, Rob Gretton, and Alan Erasmus sat down and they had a meeting with Rabid Records. And after a meeting, Martin Hannett joined the group as well. And they created Factory Records. And Martin Hannett is the main producer for, he was for a lot of the New Order records. He was the producer on the Joy Division records. And he worked with a few other famous Manchester bands, but it's just like how they came together and formed this strong unit is really interesting to me because they had like their special stamp of creativity on everything that they came out with. Like if there was a band on their label, Martin Hanna would produce it. Peter Saville would do the artwork for it. Tony and Alan would promote for them. The albums had a certain kind of sound about them. So you knew like, oh, like this band must be from Factory Records because it has a certain sound that obviously you would know would be like Martin Hannett's signature style. You know what I mean? So it helped kind of make Factory Records a standalone record company. So the gang set up an office with Alan's home on the first floor at 86 Palatine Road. So that's where their first offices would be for a long time. They saw how popular their Factory Friday Nights had become at the Russell Club. And so they thought, well, why don't we put out a seven-inch double EP of bands that played at the club and that are, you know, on our label. So Joy Division, the Derudi Column, a Sheffield band called Cabaret Voltaire, 
and comedian John Doey were on this first EP called A Factory Sample. So A Factory Sample was released on December 24th, 1978. Um, Joy Division's work followed right after this with Unknown Pleasures and that released in June of 1979. After this point in time, it's very well known that Ian Curtis died in May of 1980 and the rest of the members of Joy Division formed New Order. Factory records were really starting to rev up and people were becoming aware of like, oh, wow, like what's coming out of Factory Records? Who are these bands coming out? Like New Order was like the hottest thing on the block. And so they were branching out internationally. In 1981, New Order and Factory would go on to open a nightclub. And this is where the Hacienda comes into play, which is really interesting. Like the Hacienda plays such a major part in Manchester's music history. Preparations were made to convert a Victorian textile factory near the Manchester city center, which had at that point was pretty much a motorboat showroom. It wasn't really being used for a whole lot except for that. They decided that they would take this. It was a pretty interesting layout, like an interesting building, and they would turn it into a nightclub. The idea for coming out with a nightclub came from Rob Gredden himself. He was really pushing hard for a club and Tony and Alan just weren't on the same page with that. They weren't a fan of that idea, but they came around to it eventually. They're like, yeah, all right, we'll give the youth of Manchester a place to hang out. So it was at this point in time, Martin Hannett decided he wanted to leave Factory Records to make his own recording studio. He subsequently sued Factory for unpaid royalties. In this case, was settled out of court in 1984. So he got paid and he said, bye, I'm out of here. So after a lot of preparations and a lot of designing and back-end work, the Hacienda Club officially opened in May of 1982. So I think it's really cool, kind of the backstory of the Hacienda, um, like how it all came together seemed really, really, it just seemed to be the right place at the right time. The inspiration for the name Hacienda came from a 1950s urbanist book by Russian author Ivan Chechglov. I probably didn't say that right. And part of the book reads, And you, forgotten, your memories ravaged by the constimations of two hemispheres stranded in the red cellars of Pali Cow, without music and without geography no longer settling out for the hacienda where the roots think of the child and where the wine is finished off with fables from an old almanac. That's all over. You'll never see the hacienda. It doesn't exist. The hacienda must be built. So that last part there, the hacienda must be built. Tony saw that in the book and he was like, oh my God, the hacienda must be built. This is a calling. I must build this place called the Hacienda. And so that's where it comes from. Ben Kelly was the amazing interior designer for the Hacienda. He was mainly inspired by clubs that Tony Wilson had seen in New York. Like New Order and Factory, like Tony Wilson, they partied really hard in New York. They went to a ton of clubs. And so they had a pretty good understanding of what these New York clubs had to offer. 
that England didn't really have at the time. Like it was a really different experience going to these clubs in New York that seemed to be a bit more open and they had a bit more freedom and they were a lot more lax, I guess. So example, an example like Studio 54, the famous disco nightclub in New York, like kind of stuff like that. Like that's kind of where the initial inspiration came from. But again, the whole idea about factories and that the Hacienda was a warehouse, right? It was a Victorian textile factory. They wanted to use that for their advantage to make something really, really different. Nothing like the Hacienda's design had ever been seen before. And frankly, it hasn't ever been replicated. It hasn't even come close. So I can't verbally describe what the Hacienda looked like. It's just too crazy. But if you Google um, the inside of the Hacienda, you'll see these pillars in the middle of the dance floor. And these pillars were wrapped with like caution tape. Some of them were yellow and black. Some of them were red and black. But that was kind of like the main theme. Like there was like that caution tape, the yellow black pattern. And that was intentional. They marked and designed these columns with the caution tape. Similarly, like how you would see in an actual factory to where like in the factory, you would mark hazards with that caution tape. So although the club was successful in the fact that it garnered a lot of interest, a lot of people were going and they were seeing what the deal was with the Hacienda. For a long time in the beginning, the club made zero money. They were not getting money out of anything from the club. The club actually lost 50,000 pounds a month for the first few years due to low entrance fee prices and low bar prices. But it ended up coming out of new orders and factory records pockets more so they had to pay for this stuff. <laughs> so they were losing money rather than making money. So that was in the beginning. That definitely changed around the mid-late 80s. But those first few years, ooh, they were not. They were not good. They tried to adjust the bar prices, actually, but that didn't do anything. Um, and another thing that was causing a problem, by the mid-80s, ecstasy and other drugs were circulating throughout the Hacienda, creating a massive drug peddling problem in the club, but also in Manchester. You know who you have to thank for that? Mostly the Happy Mondays. If you want to learn more, go listen to my podcast on the Happy Mondays. It's pretty, it's wild. I'll say that. But the Hacienda really became the spot in town for, you know, the youth and for people to have a good time. It really became a lifestyle for people. Like it became ingrained into their life and it made a really big impact on them. And a lot of bands actually got their big break at the Hacienda and it gained international attention like everywhere. Famously, Madonna appeared on her first UK TV appearance on a program called The Tube, where she danced and performed her song Holiday at the Hacienda in 1983. And it became synonymous with a lot of Manchester bands getting their big break at the Hacienda Club. Like, it really solidified that if you were making it big in Manchester, you had to play at the Hacienda, and then that would solidify your place. So, for example, like, the Smiths and the Stone Roses, they played at the Hacienda, and that really gave them a foothold in music in Manchester at the time, and then it propelled them forward. 
and Oasis, the same thing with them. Happy Mondays, the same thing. The club at the time would actually host a Battle of the Bands contest to discover more up-and-coming talent. One night, the Happy Mondays played in this contest, and although their performance was considered um really not that great, they sparked the interest right away of Tony Wilson, who saw their potential, and he brought them on in 1985 to join Factory Records. The Happy Mondays became Factory Records' biggest, most popular selling artist alongside New Order. And the Happy Mondays brought about a bit of a different flavor profile to the music scene at the time. It was starting to be a bit more of like this acid house kind of dance rave scene because when E started and acid started to come around, you know, you get a bit more psychedelic, you get a bit more dancey and weird and experimental. And that's what was really popping at the Hacienda at this time for a bit until Britpop came about in the 90s. This is what was called Manchester, and it became a really big scene in Manchester. And the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses really did propel that sound 100%. And the Hacienda and Factory Records were at the epicenter for this booming music scene. In 1989, Factory started expanding and opening up other ventures. So they had a bar called the Dry Bar, and they had a shop called the Area in Manchester's Northern Quarter. So they were really starting to expand. They were no longer just a record company and a nightclub. They were branching out and they were doing a lot of stuff. I should mention that Factory was still operating out of Allen's house in Didsbury. But by 1990, they actually expanded into a bigger space on Charles Street near Oxford Road, um, where the BBC building is. But in 1991, this is where the problems would really start with Factory Records. And it's where we'll kind of see its demise, unfortunately. I mean, every good thing has to end eventually, I suppose. In 1991, Martin Hannett, the producer, had passed away in April that year. And something that's so really, really weird that hasn't been solved to this day is the, I believe he was the guitarist for the Derudi column. His name is Dave Robotham. He was actually found murdered in his flat in November of 1991. It still hasn't been solved to this day of who murdered him, but it's so crazy. Oh, a murder mystery on our hands. No, seriously, it's really weird. His murder has not been solved, but that just started the problems because now the Derudi column was done. Their main producer, Martin Hannett, had passed away. Now we're going to be getting into the stuff that really, really, really brought them down. Okay, so the Hacienda was experiencing problems of the drugs being pushed around in the club and also gun violence and crime around the club really prompted the Hacienda to take a serious look at what was going on. But so they temporarily shut down in 1991 um, and they implemented more security measures, hoping that this would maybe fix the problem. But like it came back tenfold. So there really wasn't anything to do about that. But by 1992, this is where Factory Records 1 million percent was done. So the Happy Mondays released their fourth album called Yes, Please. And this was an absolute failure 
by every stretch of the imagination. It was beyond crazy, and they lost money on that album. It did so bad on sales, and it was horrible. And so Factory went into bankruptcy, but also at this time, Tony Wilson really put the pressure on New Order because at the time they were making their album Republic. And he was like, listen, you have to make this a number one selling album. If you don't, you and I will go bankrupt, we'll be done. The album Republic became a number one album on the charts, but at this point, it was just way too late. Like nothing could be done about this. They tried to bring in London Records who had stepped in and they were interested in taking over Factory. They had initially an agreement with each other that they would try to continue somehow putting out music, but it just wasn't working anymore. It just couldn't work. The deal between them fell through. They found out that New Order owned the rights to their own catalog and Factory owned nothing. So they literally owned nothing, Factory. They had nothing to their name, but New Order owned their catalog. So when London Records found this out, they were like, well, we can't help you. At this point, Factory Records was donezo. They had dissolved. And also at this point in time too, just kind of everything culminating for this ending, grunge and alternative music was becoming very popular by the early 90s. And so Manchester was a fad at this point. It was over. It was done. The Hacienda still continued to go on, but it was kind of slowly dying. The Hacienda closed its doors in 1997 and the building was demolished shortly afterwards. It was actually replaced by luxury flats in 2003. In 2009, Peter Hook of New Order released a book titled How Not to Run a Club and it was about his time being um, co-owner of the Hacienda and all the crazy antics that happened around the Hacienda um, and his role to play. What's cool actually was in 2010, he had six bass guitars made with the wood from the Hacienda dance floor. So by this time in the 2000s, there wasn't a whole lot that was going on. It was just kind of getting everything situated and figuring out how to move on. And on August 10th, 2007, Tony Wilson passed away due to complications from kidney cancer. Peter Hook took it upon himself to collaborate with designer Ben Kelly in 2010 to turn, to renovate, and reopen Factory 251. And it's still standing today. It's still an operational club. Um, The location of this club is the former Factory Records headquarters on Charles Street. So that is um, pretty much where it ends there with the history of Factory Records and the Hacienda. But I just wanted to talk about the catalog system that Factory implemented because no other record company that I've seen had went this far. Like literally, they numbered everything. Everything that came out of Factory Records, whether it was a single, an album, a promotional poster, the Hacienda Club itself, like other businesses that they would open, it would all have a number, a catalog number associated with it. Um, They used either FAC or FACT followed by a number. 
the F-A-C-T was used for full-length albums, and then F-A-C was used for singles and other productions, like their other business ventures. So, the example, the Hacienda was Factory 51, F-A-C 51. And also, their U.S. releases would be Fact U.S., F-A-C-T-U-S. And then every album, again, like everything literally had a number. Like, it was crazy. I've never seen anything like this before. This, this quote that I'm about to share with you guys genuinely blew my absolute mind. Let me just share this. So, a great fact about why the Hacienda was given the Factory 51 number is this. So, Tony Wilson had this to say on why the Hacienda was given Factory 51. When Factory went down, Rob Gredden was always pissed off that the Hacienda was part of Factory and not its own. He actually had the Hacienda logo redesigned to take away the FAC 51, even though everybody loved it. I always made the point that it doesn't matter if Rob removes the 51, because it still says 51 in the word Hacienda, because the Sedilla, or Sedilla, I don't know how you say that, the Sedilla under the C, there is no Sedilla in Spanish. So the reason Peter put the Sedilla in originally was that the Sedilla on the C and the I make 51. My mind is blown right now. Wow. And this is what I'm talking about. Like Peter Saville's ingenuity with his design, his graphic design, putting all of this stuff together. Like it's the small things sometimes that really blow my mind. Like that was just so cool. Something that I also found interesting and kind of ironic, um, there was a point in time where they had set up Factory 101, FAC 101. They intended to turn a set of abandoned warehouses into apartments. Tony was aware um, later on how ironic it was, considering that the Hacienda is now an apartment building. And so he had this to say about that whole thing. We were visionary in that sense, that lofts would come one day, but we ran out of money. We were too busy with clubs and bars. We tried to explain lofts to people in Manchester and nobody understood it. We actually walked in Manchester Development Corporation around a building in Sackville Street, which became lofts 10 years later and said, these would make great lofts. And they went, what are lofts? So I thought that was pretty cool. So he wanted to create his own factory apartments. People were like, what the heck do you mean apartments? What does that mean? I can't compute what that means. Sorry. And then later on, it it became apartments. So that's pretty interesting. They actually had the intention to make apartments, but they couldn't do it. So So in terms of what's been happening now, um, there isn't really a whole lot that's been going on. What's been going on now is from now until January 3rd of 2022, you can actually visit a factory records exhibit at Manchester Science and Industry Museum. Like, it's really, really cool. They're going to be doing that until next year in January. So if you want to see it now and you're in Manchester, I would definitely suggest you go see it. I mean, why not? Oh, I think my voice is dying at this point. I'm sorry if my voice doesn't sound that great. I'm recording this very early in the morning and my throat is dry. <laughs> um, but that pretty much is where Factory and the Hacienda end. 
I just kind of really wanted to make sure that I gave Factory and the Hacienda its due diligence because let me tell you, after researching all about Manchester and the amazing music that came out of Manchester, it's been so pivotal for me to learn about this because I had no idea the crazy strong influence that all of these Manchester bands would have on each other, but also with so many other bands. And I think that this kind of scene could only really come out of Manchester. It became like the perfect breeding ground for this music movement that happened in the 80s and 90s. I totally understand. Like music became a really big thing in Manchester and like, I don't know, like you had to be there. It all came together perfectly for Factory and Hacienda to come together and say, we are for the Manchester youth. You know, Tony Wilson really wanted to make sure that the youth of Manchester had a place to go and enjoy music. And he thought it was doing Manchester a disservice if they didn't have clubs that were trendy and hip and were doing its best to promote new and upcoming music for the Manchester youth. While it didn't last very long, Factory Records and the Hacienda has left a wicked big impression on Manchester to this day. Like it's ingrained in Manchester's history. I just really like Manchester and everything that Manchester music has to stand for. It was really, really amazing to research all these Manchester bands and really get ingrained fully on the history about it. You know, it's a really, really great place. And if anything, if you take anything away from this episode, just listen to a Manchester band today. Put on whoever you want and just listen to a song and get swept up in all of it. But I hope that you guys have learned something that you hadn't learned before, that you didn't know about before, that you learned something that surprised you, that you will remember because that is... My big takeaway from this podcast is for you guys to learn something to expand your music knowledge. And I hope that you guys enjoyed. I am going to be signing off now and I'm going to be going to bed. So I will talk to you guys next Wednesday with a new episode of On The Mix. What that's going to be, I don't know, (laughs) but tune in next Wednesday. I will talk to you guys later. Have an awesome day. Bye, guys.